Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to your next installment in the Squash Mind podcast series. I'm absolutely delighted to have Ken Wei on the show today. And Ken is someone I discovered a little bit later in my career, and I wish I'd discovered him a little bit earlier. Uh, I got his book, which is a fantastic book on sports psychology, and he has got a lot of good squash background. Currently, Ken is working in the football and rugby field a lot more. And is currently working with a very high-profile football team, which has to remain nameless. Um, but Ken became pretty famous for working directly with Sarah Fitzgerald, who I was lucky enough to have on the show previously, who is a five-time world champion. So, you know, he knows his stuff. He is he's a really interesting guy, really passionate about what he does. And I think we had a lot of common ground. We sparked a lot of the conversation. It went back and forward. It took different routes and different threads we picked up on. And there was so much more that I wanted to 
talk to Ken about, but we ran out of time. But hopefully this means that we can lead into a second chat in the future. And, you know, having someone like Ken, a top level sports psychologist currently in the field, currently working on on the cutting edge with some of the top athletes in the world was just an absolute treat for me. So I took the full advantage of it. We go into a lot of detail on visualization. And I learned a lot about this, actually. Um, it's got me thinking a little bit about how I'm going to do my visualization practices in the future and how I'm going to try and work with my students on them. And it gave me something to think about, which I didn't think about before. So thank you for Ken for that, which is really insightful. We go into a lot of uh, detail about overthinking and how this is such a, a barrier. Also talking about how talented athletes rely on I suppose their talent and when things are working well that they just go well I don't need to work on things so why change anything and we talk a little bit about that we go into process over outcome and and how you know parents and players look a lot about the outcome of of the result rather than actually the process and how to make it a little bit more attractive thinking about the process and we finally finish off with uh, a little bit of his top tip in regard to mental toughness and growing mental toughness. We also touched very briefly on his time at Leicester City, where Leicester City won the Premier League famously in 2016, and he was massively involved with that squad. So once again, a wide-ranging conversation, which I love. I love going down these rabbit holes, and we go off in different tangents and threads. And I'm sure when you listen to this, and I would recommend listening back to it a couple of times because there's so many bits I think you might miss from just one listen. Hopefully you enjoy this chat because as you can probably tell, I really enjoyed it, really getting stuck in with some of the detail with Ken. So without further ado, welcome Ken Wade to the podcast. Ken Way, welcome to the next installment of the Squash Mind podcast series. Uh, how are you getting on? I am getting on fine, Jesse. Thank you very much for the invitation. Perfect. No, really excited to have this chat. And, uh, you know, like I said at the start, I showed you my very worn and thumbed copy of, of your book, uh, highlighted and bookmarked and all that type of stuff. But listen, for those of you who don't know who you are, you know, what what what, what you've been up to and what you're doing, could you just give us a brief bio of, of yourself and, and what, what you're currently doing in your life? Um, okay, so, so I work in the sports psychology field. I confess, Jesse, so I feel, I mean, you know, here under, uh, well, embarrassing circumstances, because my main field of working right now is football. So I've worked with seven professional football clubs in the English league, um, but I've also worked with rugby clubs, cricket clubs. But some time ago, <laughs> just a few years, I worked with a number of different uh, squash players. So um you know, I've always been interested in psychology and mm -hmm. I've always been, I've been a jack of all trades in terms of sport, you know, as a player mm -hmm. and uh, combining the two is just, uh, it's, it doesn't get much better than that. Nice. And listen, it would be remiss of me not to mention something we had an offline chat about. I believe you're a world champion in a certain sport. Can you, uh, can you highlight, highlight to us what that yeah. is? Jesse, you've already raised my calibre already. It wasn't world champion, it was British champion. Okay, okay. So three, no, three times British windsurfing champion, but uh, I haven't stepped on a windsurfing board for, I think it's measured not in years now, but decades. Okay. No, hey, but listen, nothing to be sniffed at being a, being a British champion at, at windsurfing. Um, and yeah, you revealed a good little nugget to me before we started recording. But um. Listen, sports psychology, uh, this, this discussion I hope we're going to have today 
you know, it crosses loads of different sports. There's obviously the individual sports and the team sports, which we might take a bit more of a nuanced look at some point. But um, I'm really interested to zoom in in particular to a mutual friend of ours, Sarah Fitzgerald, five-time world champion. She spoke very highly of the work that you did with her. So in opening, I would, I would really like to know what it was like working with someone like that. You know, there's, there's maybe a naturalness to what she did and there was already maybe a bit of an inbuilt mental toughness. But, but how was your relationship? What, what did you guys work on to get her to become that five-time world champion? Uh, listen, I, I've got to tell you, working with Sarah was an absolute delight. One of the biggest problems that you have as a sports psychologist, it's getting better generally throughout the sports, but, but the problem you have is you as a, dare I say it, a mental expert, for want of a better phrase, mm -hmm. you can see what's going on. You, you know, you as a coach, Jesse, you know, you can see the problems that a player is going through and, and you get in a sense of how to correct it. That's fine as a coach, a physical coach saying, hey, this is how you should hold the racket. This is what you should be doing. P players will accept it. Mm -hmm. When you do that from the mental game, when you go, listen, what I'm seeing here right now is the possibility you're getting on your own case. You're getting the frustration is feeding through to the racket, etc. Is are they really willing to work? And, and what was what's fantastic about Sarah is she was not only willing to work, she worked at it. What, what does tire me, I confess, sometimes in working in different sports, but I, I think I've said before, mainly football, is you can observe a player you know, suffering with some kind of mental problem. But when you go to approach them, um, I, I remember actually working with this uh, footballer. He'd been off form for some time, hadn't scored a goal for some like 18, 20 matches. He was a striker. Mm -hmm. And I uh, walked off for the training ground with him and I said, hey, you know, can we get five? I always ask for five minutes. Can we get five minutes just to chat about game? And his, his reaction was, no, thanks, Ken. Wow. Okay. Completely dumbfounded me. Not even a, well, Ken, I'm not really into it. We didn't even sort of, you know, get into the discussion with it. But with Sarah, just, yeah. she was so open about it, open to accept absolutely, you know, everything. And mm -hmm. uh and, and really work at it, you know, to make it work for her. Mm. That's, yeah, that's the impression I got from her. There was, there was this, you know, I, I'm very big on growth and fixed mindset. I do quite a lot of work and I try to educate people on Carol Dweck and she, she talked about the fixed mindset character traits and the growth mindset character traits. And um, Sarah exhibits all the personality traits of that growth mindset. So I'm interested with that footballer. So obviously you, you saw that he just dismissed the notion of a chat with you at that point. What, what do you then do? Do you, do you try and find another way to talk to him? Do you accept where he's at? What, what would be your process with someone who's got the barriers up straight away? Well, so, I mean, we did actually have a discussion, but it was a fairly short discussion back to the changing rooms. where I said, oh, can, can I ask you, you know, any reason why, why you feel this way? And he just gave me the low down, you know, that mentally. I mean, he was a big bloke, you know, uh, sort of, you know, 190 meters you know and and I've, i i'm not short but you know i felt somewhat intimidated because he left me in no uncertain terms i don't want to work and and i've i've learned actually how to approach players don't approach them in when they're in company so approach them when they're on their own okay um I, it, it has changed i've just signed a contract with a new football club who shall remain nameless just because they've got a clause in their 
two contracts, both <laughs> asking me for uh, confidential reasons. Don't mention that I'm working there. Yeah. I don't know whether that's to save their face or my face, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, the youngsters, the youngsters, the younger ones coming through now are far more open. And I think Jesse, what you're saying there telling people about fixed and growth mindsets and i i think it's not just helpful actually for their development on sport mm -hmm. but fixed and growth mindset is actually a development in life you know just to sort of be, i need to be more open to the idea that i can, i can be more than i am mm. no totally i think i think the part of the education i'm trying to do i i i use the lens of squash great but actually we we try zoom out a lot and we go right is is this is this folding into your day-to-day -day life when you're confronted with challenges at school with your parents arguments with your friends how are you in a conflict situation and then you know what can you learn from that and bring it into the sporting arena and similar can you take the sporting arena back out into life what do you think on that do you do you try to get that overlap to totally totally I actually i love the way you express that 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 it's not my initial sort of approach because, you know, whatever sport I'm working in is because their focus tends to be purely sport. I just want to be better. I didn't play very well in that match, in that game. I want you to fix me, fix me now, which, which, by the way, is another, you know, sort of side of things that you may have noticed as a coach is, you know, especially when you get more and more towards the elite end of it, it's fix me now. Completely. Make it work for me now. They, they don't want to have a kind of, you know, a, a two-month, three-month training session that will get there. You know, I, I want to do it now, mm -hmm. which I love because it shows the motivation, the desire to actually improve. But you sometimes need to actually talk them into just slowing this down. This this is not perhaps going to happen overnight. But yeah. but that link to where else does this happen in your life? Oh yeah. Mm. Okay, I start to see threads of it. So I've got a you know the neural circuitry that drives frustration or drives doubt or drives despair or whatever it might be yeah no it, i think it makes complete sense the way you put that and it, it's such a hard hard line to walk and it's like you said especially at the elite level where the athletes are so tuned into to the the outcomes and they they need to win the matches and and get that over the line and you know it, it becomes so outcome driven and, and that probably links me into my next little thread and, and i think we're going to pick up on this where again i think you do it i definitely do it process over outcome we, we try to get our athletes to really focus on the processes but it's not that sexy is it you know and like and and for me i'm quite interested to know how do you sell this to players and even parents when they become so fixated on the results um what's your thoughts when when i ask that do you, do you know what yeah i mean totally the outcome versus process is just uh, i think all coaches now sort of really try to sort of hammer that home and it is a difficult one to get over. So one of the ways that I try to get across this outcome versus process, you know, sort of conundrum is by focusing on the, or telling just a piece of research by a research, psychology researcher. I don't know whether this is male or female, but it's lean fam. Uh, lean fam divide, typical psychology experiment, divided the group, you know, group of students into two. Yeah. And they were about to sit a final year exam and she asked them, please, could they, as they were revising for the exam, could every time they sat down to revise, please write tap down how long, you know, what day it was and how long they revised for. Right. So both groups are doing this, but one group, she said at the end of it, she said, 
could you, once you finish your revision, could you spend five minutes, by the way, this is five minutes visualizing, which you'll probably know is that's quite a long time. So visualize for five minutes, success in the exam. Wow. So they are focused on, notice this is outcome focus. I'm getting success. Mm-hmm. And of course, then the students sat the exam. And of course, there was a big difference between the two groups. Okay. The group that visualized success were less successful. That's so interesting. Because so I've got to in, other words, yeah. in other words, what they had done was tantamount to telling themselves at an un- almost at an unconscious level, well, doing it consciously, but giving the unconscious message, hey, it doesn't matter about this exam, I'm going to be successful. Wow. And what that fed back to was they didn't revise for as long. That's amazing. So, That's- so the process of revision, the process actually w- ruined mm. their success. Visualizing success actually took away some of the application to process and you kind of go okay if i spend too much time this is why one of the things that and i quite often say this to the people i'm working with you know if you buy these self-help books how many of them tell you to visualize success imagine holding that trophy coming off the court with a smile on your face because you have won we all like to daydream you know mm-hmm. but it's just like daydreaming winning the lottery Mm. We, what you've got to daydream about is the process, is the activity, is the how I'm going to do it. And yes, maybe then have a smile on your face for batting a, a wall, a little black ball up and down the backhand wall. Yeah, that's listen. Wow. There's about 20 rabbit holes. I want to go down with you here. So but you summed up one of them. Great. You know, this idea around visualization, which I'm very big on it. It makes up a big part of my coaching and actually I've been questioning myself in regard to what I'm asking my athletes to visualize and possibly I've been focused a bit more on the outcome, but the way you said it there and the way that, that, that experiment was, and when I say outcome, I actually mean the outcome of, of the shot and where the ball wants to go. I'm not actually big on visualizing the, the positive, almost the American, you know, Hey, pump your fist as you get out of bed in the morning and win the day. So that I just want to make a distinction there. Um, yeah. Because I think, because I think I, I completely agree with the way you said those self-help books um, yeah, visualize success and, and, and the universe will conspire to give you that success. But, <laughs> and you're laughing there as I said that. It, it is, it's, oh man. And, and, and the next bit I want to hear from you is, is that I think, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, this might link to goal setting. It's nice to have the dream and you can put it on the top shelf, but how can you break that down into daily and weekly habits and tasks? Is that how you would go about goal setting is having the nice dream, but, but how can you really strip it down? Okay, I don't want to jump, you know, dive in and go, well, in the book, but but in the book, I, I mean, I have a particular structure of uh, goal setting, which, so the acronym being power. Mm-hmm. I think the obvious thing is P for positive, that which goes without saying, but you'd be amazed at how many people will set a goal and phrase it in terms of the negative. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hit the tin as many times as I did. I don't want to make as many unforced errors as I did. So mm-hmm. I need to be the positive. The O is for ownership. What I will do—that's that's a given, I think, in squash and in most sports. What am I? What am I in control of? Some people not in control. That's so much control. But the specific—I mean, a lot of the, your listeners will have heard of SMART goals. Yeah. You know, the acronym SMART. Um, so it's just, can I, you know, sort of 
get the real specifics of what I want. So the W is for well-defined, just making sure you know you define it very, very well. What is absolutely key? The next one, E for evidence. What will you see? What will you hear? What will you feel? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we could spend an awful long time, Jesse, perhaps this, I'm not giving you guidance here. Please, please don't. But is feelings, not just the emotional feelings, but that kind of sense of the tactile feelings, the kinesthetic responses and feelings that I will get when I play it right. Mm-hmm. And the final one, which I also think is lift, missed out from goal setting devices, the R for resilience, mm-hmm. is you definitely need to know, partic- I don't know why I'm saying particularly squash, I guess it's because this is squash mind after all, but, but is, you know, what am I going to do when it doesn't go the way I want? How am I going to get myself back into the game? And, mm-hmm. I, and I, I feel squash, you know, as a, as a game of uh, very often attrition mm-hmm. is, you know, it, you can see the mental kind of variations going through, you know, through a game. Mm-hmm. And so the resilience, how can I get myself back on song? And you know what, Jesse, I've just taught myself into a little bit of a, a rabbit hole here because I don't think I answered. I don't think I answered your question. But no, this is exactly the part. Like you know, in uh, I was speaking to you offline about this. These type of conversations are more important than following a script. I just love where it takes you in the sense. And listen, goal setting. I, I had. I was going to not initially ask you even about that today because it's such a huge topic. And you know, I think if you portray it in the wrong way, it can put people off. But we, we're not going to initially go deeper there. But I think where I was trying to get to was this this idea of how you how you sell process over outcome. You know, it's, 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 it, let me give you a little case study here, or not a case study, but, I, but I've written this down. So this might help the next little bit what we want to talk about. <clears throat> so you've got a talented youngster, right? And they're getting all the results and they're relying on this as it's just working. You know, they can just turn up, they play, they win. They turn up, they play, they win. And they're not really putting much effort into their, their, their mental side. So why would they change anything? So they're, they're not really willing to put in those hard yards, hard yards in the mind because the outcome is very natural to them. How do you highlight to them that this is very short-term thinking? We all know there's, there's a big old world out there. They get the short-term rewards, the short-term results, and they go, well, why should we do anything different? Maybe that links into the process over outcome a little bit more. How would you address a talented youngster of this nature? Shall I give him my short answer? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Neither> do I. <laughs> I, I think it, it is one of the uh, the biggest problems when someone is being six, particularly when someone is being successful, mm. uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting the results, but they're doing the wrong things. Yep. You know, they're setting themselves up for a huge fall. I, I've got a, a young athlete now, 16 years old, a, a gymnast, and she's had success at uh, many, many different levels, but the mental games just got in the way. And it, the mental games got in the way because suddenly she's not achieving the results that she has been expecting for, you know, has had all her life. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of goes back, you know, unless they start listening to an, the, the mental coach right now and understanding the mental game, they are setting themselves up for a fall. But you try telling that to a, to a young player ago, yeah, nice to listen to you, old man, but, you know, yeah. you don't really know how good I am. Yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? It's that, it's that little analogy I keep coming back to. It's how can you get a 40-year-old head into a 20-year-old body? I think I heard that somewhere in a coaching, where it was a conference or something, but 
you know, the, the, the experience of a 40 year old to put it into that young body, because when we're young, we're fit, we, we can just do things. We think, ah, you know what? It's all physical. It's all, we can see how we hit the ball. We can see how we move. And that's the judgment of a lot of success or failure is, is, is what's happening on, on the outside. But actually when you speak to athletes that are mid twenties and their thirties, even late in their career, 35, 37, they start going, wow, that is, is, is huge. I think in your book, you talked about Steve Redgrave. He said something along those lines. Can you expand on that? What, what Steve Well, Redgrave yeah. Do you know what? Funny enough, I didn't know I said it in the book because I was, as you were talking, I was just thinking that takes me back to Steve Redgrave. You know, so Steve Redgrave, you know, what did he win? Five Olympic golds in five consecutive Olympic games. Amazing, yeah. And he wrote, that it, I, I don't know if this is, after he'd won his first gold medal or even before it, but he wrote, you know, I don't need no mental coach, you know, I'm solid and everything else. And then after his fifth one, he said something along the lines of, you know, um, I, if only I'd known then how, what I needed to, what I now know about the mental game. Yeah. And, and he's not alone. And a number of people who, you know, when they get to retirement age, they go, I didn't realize and appreciate how important the mental game was. Mm. And of course, you you know, as 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 you get better and better, that mental game is the bit that starts to make the difference. Mm. You know, yeah. we, we, we talk about being fitness, flexible, you know, having the right stroke play and everything else. But eventually you bump into that kind of real question mark. How good is my mental game? Mm. That, that, that sparks two things in my mind there as you were speaking. The one of them is something that, that I'm wrestling with is when is the athlete ready to hear the information you're presenting? I think that that completely changes in different points of players' careers, a 21-year-old and a 25-year-old. You might give the same message to that 21-year-old and the exact same message to them four years later, and it hits the mark when they're 25. And at 21, it just, they weren't ready to hear that. So that's the one part. But then the second part to the, the kind of the question or the discussion here is that talented athlete I spoke about, do they need to experience obviously those, those hard losses or, and do they need to be exposed and have discussions with other athletes that have fallen because of what, what, you know, you know, someone 10 years older than that has had the same situation. So I don't know. I, I, that's a, not really a question there, but just a broad statement. What, what do you think of that? Well, I def no, I definitely agree with it. It's when they have the hard knocks, when things don't go well for them, that, and they, you know, talking to their parents, talking to their coaches, that's when they start going, opening up to the possibility, maybe there's something else that I actually need to know. Right. I, honestly and truthfully, I, you know, the the, the world. I've I've worked it within football clubs now for well, it, it, again, it's measured in decades rather than years, and I have noticed a huge huge change the club that I've just joined for example with the exception of just one or two players in fact yeah I'd say two players out of the 25 are a little reluctant to work with me the rest of them have welcomed me with literally with open arms That's amazing. Um, and and it, it always is so as you would know as a coach it's always so much better when the athlete themselves turns around and goes Hey coach, can you help me with this? I've seemed to have a problem here. This isn't working. Because so, then they've got the hunger, they've got the desire. Okay. Trying to persuade them that you've seen something that will benefit them when they themselves don't really appreciate it, that can be a tough call. Mm. Yeah, like, I, I, that's really encouraging to hear that you're currently in the field working with these high level professional footballers 
and you've seen a real good change. So if you rewind 10, 15, 20 years, there was almost a bit of a taboo around the, the, the mental side. There was almost like, oh, we're only working on our mental game because we we feel we're weak or we, we've got these flaws. Whereas now I think athletes are, are putting the interventions in place before the problems start. Would you say that's the case? Are they recognizing that you get the mental side right first, so you, you, you basically make yourself more immune later on down the line? Absolutely. And I think also the other, the other thing to do, and, and you and I had a sort of pre-session chat about this, but the, the, the difference between the academic approach and the more practical kind of oriented approach is I definitely try to shoot very early on, you know, first session for a, what I would call a quick win. A demonstration that actually, hang on, the mental game has got. So when I'm running team sessions, please don't take me down that line, Jesse. But if if, we, if when I'm running team sessions, I will do you know workshops. I will do something up front to demonstrate, and I'll get them all doing something. So they actually go, oh wow, I get you know, it. very very quick, very you know to explain how important the the mental game is. I like that. So that's so interesting because. On, on, I just got to reflect on myself here because I don't think I do those quick wins early on. I almost, I take my athletes and go, yes, you got to put the work in, you got to get your reps in. But I love the way you try to get that immediate quick win in. Um, can you, well, I know you've given a bit of an example, but but does anything come to mind about how you can expand on that a little bit? Do you know what, Jesse? And I don't mean this, you know, kind of, these are my secrets. I'm keeping them for myself. Uh, it's just Honestly and truthfully, if I gave you an example of two of them that I use very regularly, your listeners would go, what? Okay, fair enough. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't carry. Yeah. Um, It wouldn't make the impression, but, but I promise you, you this is kind of bigging myself up here in, in, in the room. So, so for example, as I said, I've just signed for a new, uh, a new football club. Pre, we we go back pre-season training in in just a short while two two weeks time mm-hmm. at some time in the, in the next three or four weeks i will find myself in front of 25 elite players who are pretty hard nosed about you know kind of we are they know where their place mm-hmm. in the kind of hierarchy we're good we know what we're doing and you you have to kind of you, you do have to Im- impress them with and get the message through. This is actually, you know, how, how the mental game can make you improve. So one of the things, maybe what I can do though, is um, I can give you a kind of a, an insight, actually how I very often talk to players. So I, so I will say, I mean, forgive me, Jesse, I'm, I'm, I'm at right at this moment in time, I am looking at you on zoom, but if I were working with you, I'd say, Hey, Jesse, there's, I want you to imagine there are two players. There's Jesse, how you are right now, brackets, you're not listening to the mental game. Okay. And there's Jesse version 2.0. Mm-hmm. Jesse version 2.0 is really keen. He recognizes the, the gain that he can make from approaching the mental game, improving the, his mental approach to, to everything. To it. And, and I will draw in the air with my fingers going, the progress, the development, the results for you. And of course, that's a very shallow curve. And then I'll draw for the curve for Jesse version 2.0. And of course, there's a much sharper curve and where we will be after six months, where we were the difference that will be after one year, the difference that will be after in two years. And they, you know, it's just to kind of demonstrate, you know, 
there is a difference. Strangely enough, that also links to um, some of the work I do, and this comes back to the, your, your focus on visualizations, but this, uh, this sense between the difference between visualizing associatedly and visualizing dissociatedly. Again. So this sense of actually, one of the things that possibly, you know, the listeners to this may not be aware is when we visualize, there seem to be for some forsaken reason, and psychologists still don't know the reason for why this is, there are two different ways that we tend to visualize. Either we visualize as if we are back there now in our bodies, experiencing it in first person situation, or we visualize it in third person perspective. So it's as if we are looking at ourselves doing it. And I think that gives us the opportunity to really craft and design kind of tailor-made, custom-designed visualizations to help players, you know, improve their mental game. And, and again, that, that is something when you draw attention, and I, I have a sort of formula for helping players realize that they do have these two different ways of visualizing. They suddenly it opens them up to recognizing their unconscious minds are doing things, making decisions on their behalf that they didn't even realize. Mm. No, I love that. Listen, you're speaking my language then. And in part of the Squash Mind app, if I'm running a visualization script, I actually challenge the players to, to flip between the two. So I get them to do first person for a little bit. And then I go, right, pause there, zoom out, imagine yourself on screen or watching yourself from the gallery and repeat that process. And, and I go through a little stage of they actually make the mistake in both the first and third person. So they hit that backhand volley drop in the tin. They feel the emotions of it. And then they try to do it again and they, they replay the film, but they reframe it. They reframe the same situation appearing, but then the successful outcome of it. So, you know, I don't know if that's what you're getting at there a little bit. And, but it is interesting that, that most people tend to go, oh, I way preferred one way than the other. I couldn't really do the other way. I tried. Is that what they, they're discovering in, in, in some of the neuroscience that one way is easier than the other? Yeah, usually people seem to have a, a kind of a preference for how they do it. I mean, there's a, there's a time component here as well. You, for most people will think when they think further back in time, mm. it tends to somehow or other the unconscious mind starts to, I mean, obviously, you know, here's the, here's the stupid thing. We experience life always through first person. I mean, let's, let's move away from drug fuel worlds, etc. <laughs> but we, you know, we are in our bodies all the time. Yeah. And yet some of our memories are stored in third person perspective. Wow, okay. And we, you can understand why this might be when you go back in time. You know, when I think of, you know, going back to where I used to be at school, going to school, most of my memories there, well, as far as I know, almost all of my memories are stored in third person perspective. And I kind of understand why that might happen. But now if we're projecting forward, I mean, let's say I'm, you know, I'm a sportsman, I want to visualize processes that lead me to gain success. Nice. And the question is, well, which, which is for me is going to be better for me. Mm. So I, I actually use, uh, again, an acronym DAD. D-A-D, okay. dissociate, associate, dissociate. Nice. So one of the things that I, I will do, uh, and, and this, I've got to be careful with saying this, this isn't, this isn't for everybody and every situation, but I will ask people to, you know, so typically someone will come to me and say, oh God, I made a mistake. I was off form. I didn't do this. 
and we'll take a specific situation and and mo almost well, 99% of the time when they visualize it, replaying it in their mind, they are fully associated first person perspective. Mm -hmm. So then I ask them to actually dissociate. So see it third person, but correct it. Amazing. And not just correct it, but have what I call the drool factor. So you're literally drooling at the mouth. You're looking at yourself performing what was a mistake absolutely perfect perfectly mm -hmm. and it's not about the result it's not about scoring the goal playing the winning shot it's about the perfection of the process mm, love so that. that they get a they get a feeling externally from third even from third person perspective having got it so that it does meet that drool factor perspective then to step inside their body to to really to get the kinesthetics loaded yeah this feels right wow but i finish it off with a re recall to to dissociation the general and this isn't this isn't for absolutely verbatim for everybody mm -hmm. but the general perspective is that a dissociated a third person perspective is generally speaking more motivational more kind of Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, I want to have that. I see what that looks like. I see that looks so good. You think about actually, why were you drawn to the, the sport of squash? You looked at it, you saw it and went, hey, that looks good. I'd like to be where that person is doing it. So that dissociated perspective, third person perspective, mm. for most people, most situations is more motivational. Yeah. So that's that's very typically a, a visualization process that I use. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's, that's amazing. I've, I've learned just so much from just that little few minutes you've, you've expressed there. Um, I just want to explore it a tiny bit more. What do you do in regard to timeframes? How long do you go disassociated, associated? Do you set timers for that? What, what, what do you think there? No, I, oh God, I tell you what, this is, this is now mixing up the science and moving into the world of the art. You, you will know as a coach, you know, you, you know the right things to do and everything else, but there's, there is, there's an art to coaching. There, mm -hmm. and there is an art. I'm sure my academic uh, colleagues in, within sports psychology would disagree with this. Uh, it's there is an art to yeah. recognizing how long. So that, you know, you're observed, just like a coach, you're observing them so closely. Mm -hmm. How long is this taking? But uh, is there a typical length? 
No, I, I mean, one thing for one thing for sure is I don't overcook it. I want to make sure that this is <clears throat> this is easy to do. Yeah. And, and by the way, I ask them to do their homework is actually to go away and do that, you know, several more times. Exactly. Yeah. I, in fact, so um, I do quite a bit of work with the um, uh, British Horse Racing Centre. Um, where they train professional jockeys mm -hmm. and the problem with professional jockeys at least youngsters breaking in to become professional jockeys is that they will sit down with because all of their matches are televised right they will sit down with their trainer possibly with the owner and they'll run through the mistakes the errors so it's not bad enough that they actually made the error. They actually experienced the mistake. Mm -hmm. It's played over and over again. And mm -hmm. in the process of doing that, they're actually, it's developing, if you like, the neural circuitry of focusing on mistakes from a dissociated third-person perspective. Mm -hmm. and I, so, so this development of my, this DAD acronym process, mm -hmm. first, about, first of all, came about helping jockeys, professional jockeys, to eliminate that focus of, you know, focusing on the mistake, you yeah. know, wanting to go, how do I correct errors mm -hmm. from a mental thing is, and it's not just about, you know, as we said earlier on, it's not just about the outcome versus process. Yes. Yeah. God, I'm talking myself into the ground this here. Just sorry. Honestly, please keep going, Ken, because this, this is, this is gold for me and the listeners. This is the exact type of stuff that, 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 you know, I'm working on with the players, um, albeit like your nuances and the way you go into the detail is, is brilliant. Two quick things here. Um, what I heard you, you get, and this is something I encourage, frequency over duration for your practice. So maybe doing two to three minutes every day rather than doing a block of 20 minutes on a Monday and don't do it again till next Monday. What do you think on that? Oh, I'm totally, totally with you. I, I confess when I was uh, much, much younger, you know, working you know, as a sports psychologist, I would tend to over overplay it. I would get them to do, you know, we, we'd actually do a session and I would really string it out and I would make sure I dotted the I's, crossed the T's and everything else. For, for me, no, yeah. it's uh, getting, you know, strengthening those, those you know, neural connectivities, you know, to, to make the circuits really run i'm in this situation this is what i'm going to do rather than compounding it and, and by the way making it painful which is yeah. which is I, I can think of an experience again being tutored by a very experienced sports psychologist and i, and I thought at the time and and dare i say you know i feel i'm still right <clears throat> he overplayed it just mm -hmm. just made it more complicated more detailed to the point it just bored the, the hell out of the, the athlete. Yeah, no, totally. And it's something I'm, I'm revisiting in, in my, my coaching. I'm learning on the job. As I said, I think before we started recording, grow wings on the way down, you know, take that jump and, and learn as we go. And yeah, I definitely think I've over-egged a few things and it's going, right, how can we make that, that, that simple impact? And you talk about neural pathways and neural circuitry. I, I'm not sure if you read, I'm sure you have, but um, with the brain scanning technology now, the brain can't tell the difference between the visualization of the event and the actual event itself. I just, I just love that research they're doing now that, that those, those pathways become really strong. And it, it reminds me of, of Hebb's law, you know, in the 1950s, neurons that fire together, wire together, you know? So if, if, you're, if you're sparking them up, 
great, but it, it's the continuity of doing it, isn't it? And also what you said, maybe the excitement, not necessarily doing an hour visualization on a Monday and just being bored to tears that you don't do it again, like until a month later, but actually two or three minutes as you're going to bed possibly, and just read, like keeping it fresh, that, that, that's something I'm exploring a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, so, so I go back to the jockeys, mm. the, the jockeys, up until I started sort of working with the, the youngsters coming through, they would watch the mistakes. And I promise you, they'd watch the mistakes, I, I don't know, 15, 20 times. Wow, compounding. And, and as you said, what, what are we training when we watch the mistakes? We're, we're training our, the neural circuitry goes, oh, this, you know, the unconscious mind just doesn't yeah. appreciate that difference. It goes, oh, you're looking at this, you're getting <laughs> yeah. a feeling of this. I'll do it again. Next exactly. time we're in that situation, we'll yeah. do it again. Yeah, you, you just you all you're doing is your is your you're taking those neural circuits to the gym and you're just making them stronger. You know, it's, it's, it's the gym of the mind. I talk about when, when I'm doing work on the mind, it's going, well, it's like you are going to the gym. What are you repeating? And, you know, you hear this, like the technique of, of how you lift your weights is really important. Yes. I think then the technique of what you work on your mind is as equally important, not just initially, like you said, focusing on those negatives. Um, I just want to do a little quick experiment with you, if that's okay. Um, uh -oh. Oh, but, but it's with your dad acronym here. So, so I've got a plan, right? And they're really struggling with their backhand volley drop. You know, they get in it, they, 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 they tinning it often or they're ballooning it. There's this level of nervousness. Every time they execute the shot, there's this doubt. Talk to me about how you would maybe reframe that in your, in your, in the, in the visualization with the dad analogy. What, what would you do with that athlete? Well, one, one of the things I would do to make sure, and this, this is where the, the territory between you as the squash coach and as the mind coach gets very, very much more, more close, mm -hmm. is actually I'd start by taking an expert. They, they will have seen other players play the perfect backhand volley drop. Mm -hmm. They go, so that's what it, you know, that's what it looks like. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Rather than actually, you know, somebody who doesn't have the necessary, let's say, the ability to, you know, this is this is such an advanced shot, you know, it's, it's not really in their repertoire because training them at a mental uh, mentally one of the things we've got to be careful is treading on the toes of what we've already talked about outcome versus process so we know where the ball wants to go yeah okay that's the outcome but yeah. it's not goes such a delicate area here oh, which is why i like to take so sometimes in that dad process, the first D, what I will do is ask them to visualize or, you know, having seen uh, El Shabagi's, you know, playing that, the perfect backhand drop volley mm -hmm. and seeing him do it and then superimpose themselves doing it. So now instead of they seeing all the dynamics of it exactly as it was played, but instead of seeing the expert doing it, they're mm. seeing themselves do it. Mm. Love it. Yeah. Just taking them closer to it. Mm. Yeah, no, totally. And, and I'm glad you've said that because again, maybe a bit of a discovery by accident um, in the app, I've got a video guided section and, and there's like a two minute video say again, Shabagi is actually playing the backhand volley drops. <laughs> I have my voice talking about some of the technical details and going, right. If you observe Shabagi X, Y, Z happens, right. And we repeat it and I show it. But then what I get my players to do is, is they've got a little script, just my voice, of, of exactly that. They visualize Shabagi doing it for about a minute, a minute and a half. Then they transport themselves into it. 
as in the first person, and then they go back third person, and they see themselves almost as Shabaggy doing it. So maybe I've accidentally stumbled on your your dad analogy yeah. in by just just by experimenting myself in a way. So yeah, I'm kind of glad that you said and that was no setup as well. You just did yeah. that. No, oh, and I'll tell you what, I'm, you know, I'm delighted actually to, to hear this because it has helps confirmation that you know the technique I'm describing. Mm-hmm. I didn't read it anywhere. It's, it's not in the manuals. It's not in the books. Yeah. It's not in the academic papers and the research. But so, we, hey, we should congratulate one another. <laughs> so, so it's like a mutual congratulation society building here, <laughs> which is great. But just my last point on that would be the players that have done it. And when I've got on court with them and actually practiced the skill, the biggest feedback I've got, which literally gave me goosebumps, the player turned around and said to me, said, you know what? I don't know actually how I'm doing it but I can just feel I'm doing it now. I don't even know what I'm kind of doing. And for me, that then really tips into the unconscious brain is taking up the workload and the unconscious nervous system is, is doing the work. And that's kind of where we want to be, isn't it? As, as an athlete, we want to have that unconscious doing the majority of the lifting, would you say? Yeah, well, absolutely. And of course, here's the thing is, our sensory apparatus is so sensitive. It picks up so much information. You know, if I were to look at the video clips you're talking about, actually, you know, as a as a one-time okay squash player, not a good squash player, but just an average club squash player, I'd look at it and go, great shot. That looks but I would miss all the little nuances that my senses actually, my visual sense would pick up. Mm. And when you know, when I replay that accurately in my head at an unconscious level, mm. uh, you know, it just feeds that, you know, information yeah productivity as it were mm. and actually, at a what, much what, deeper level yeah one of the lower level players i coached and actually if several have said this now they've, they've looked at those videos on the app but what they've said okay it improved the shot itself but they they actually noticed two or three little things that i didn't even mention on the video and for me how powerful is that that they are now getting the coach's eye so to speak they are looking for the nuances themselves and actually processing that information and actually for me what i'm really keen is really exploring this with juniors more really stripping it down to the 12 13 14 year olds going right watch it but it's almost like you know those pictures where you go spot the difference what have i not mentioned that you as a young player need to see have the coach's eye so yeah i don't know little experiments i'm going to be working on in the future that's fantastic i, I tell you what you've made me uh you made me, th- I'm already starting to think I need to get that app because I think I could use that particular section to show what is a real, and I think even as a non-squash player, a footballer might look at it and go, that's a complicated shot. That's a really delicate shot. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the codes and stuff, unlock the app and have a little play around with it and have a little go. That could be cool. But that, that really links me to my next little bit I, I, I'd like to explore. Concept of overthinking. And we've talked about the conscious brain, the unconscious brain. Um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I think is really interesting about how we, we need to have that unconscious brain take up the workload. So my question is, when an athlete has worked really hard physically and mentally but they want to be really conscious when they compete. You know, I don't know if you see that often. I see that so often in squash. They've done all the right things and they get on court and they go, right, now I need to think about what I've done because it's worked in training. What tools would you have to help the pitfalls of overthinking? God, you, you've asked me another question. I go, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, a really great question because I have, I have bumped into a lot of people overthinking and of course, what we ask them to do is to sit down and think about their overthinking 
<laughs> necessarily that that's a real kind of vicious circle sort of you know diving down to it um because because i think just just maybe to, to help or expand this what well, one thing i i try to do it's i i went through a whole process of we need the, the conscious input. We need to work on our mind and train, but then maybe it was a bit simplistic this, but we need to try and actually flick a light switch to turn that off and be more mindful and present. And actually got into very big, um, not big, but you know, meditation and, and understanding that to be here in the moment. But what I found on my little journey is going, actually what started to work well in the last six, six months to 12 months is when I work with players of the big bit of the conscious effort what we strip it down to is some very simple mantras and sayings. So if there's any conscious input in the match, it's linked to the game plan or it's linked to maybe a little bit of technique you've been working on, whether it's leaning on your backhand volley drop, whether it is lift the ball. And what I found is if we're going to go conscious, it's very, very stripped down to its basic levels, but it's actually linked to what you've done before. That's my process. I don't know if that resonates yeah. with you or if that's too much or it's too little. What, what do you think? Um, I, Okay, sorry, my he, as usual, Jesse. When you talk, I'm going. My mind flicks to one thing, then it flicks to another. Oh, yeah, I know. Unless, <laughs> in case I lose this, so um, I'm not going to mention the particular player that uh, I I worked with, and it's not that long ago, squash player. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she got on her own case, so there was a notion that sometimes she needed to change things, and and the 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 mantra. Wasn't the mantra she had in her head was completely the wrong mantra. Not again! Oh God! No. You know, it was all the negative stuff. Yeah. And and what I was a recognition, of course, you can't play good squash really from that kind of angered kind of point of view. It don't it, it can only work for one or two strokes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the 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 mantra she had, which was linked to a kind of a dad type format, but was in very soft words, I, I can't even make it as delicate as she said it, but it was next time. Okay. So when she played, you know, she played it into the tin mm -hmm. instead of she got, getting on her own case next time. Nice. I like that. Um, it's just that softening it. Um, it's so interesting you say softening on, on um, again, maybe linked to uh, Laura Massaro, you know, world champion, world yeah. number one we we've had a couple of chats on on the podcast series and she said one of her biggest breakthroughs was mentally softening she thought she was owed and deserved the wins because of how hard she was training and actually when she stopped taking herself so seriously she came up with a little like dance routine in a hotel before she went to play and actually it was really interesting how she went through an evolution of mental softening and actually the language she used in her own inner voice and her mind really really changed over time so um yeah you saying yeah. that mental softening i think as athletes we are quite maybe tipping into perfectionists we're quite highly tuned into what we're doing we really want to do well we know we can do it so when we don't do it maybe the automatic response is that negative language like you said that oh no bloody hell again like come on i can't believe it so did you say then you work with her and reframe that quite well yeah and i think the trouble is that actually when we're not playing well that flip, we actually move from unconscious competence into conscious competence, which suddenly the conscious mind's trying to take over That's and we're not getting the same results. I, I, so the examples that I often use is, because you and I are doing this right now. Mm -hmm. It may not seem it perhaps sometimes to the listeners, but actually we are unconsciously competent at the activity of talking to one another. 
as I talk to you, my tongue is flying around my, my mouth. My teeth are opening and closing. My mouth's opening and closing. Someone's decided to use a form of words. When I'm saying someone, you know, it's me. Mm. And, and okay, no one on the podcast will see this, but I'm making gestures. Who decided to move? You know, this is unconscious competence just using its natural flow. And, and of course, players, when they're playing at the best, there's no decisions being made at a conscious level whatsoever. It's just happening. You know, we, Chick sent me Haley, you know, talks about being in the flow. We just need to, to get the conscious mind go walkies. Yeah. And, you know, focus purely on working unconsciously. Mm, and that's got to be a, that's got to be a softer. If we're talking about the emotions or the feelings that will actually drive that, it's not going to come from, okay, let's, uh, I need to focus unconsciously. It's going to come from a much softer you know, domain. That's, that's, that's personally why I love the, the, the East, East, East meets West. You've got a chapter in your book about that. And, and there's actually a whole yeah. book called East meets West. It's, it's the, 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 the Eastern philosophies of, you know, mindfulness and presence and, and being at one, but then also the West is more maybe the science that backs it up. Why Buddhist monks can be in these Zen states for longer and get into these flow states. Um, and actually it was one of my little like bonus questions here, but I just want to explore this just for one second. You mentioned the word flow and I've, I've, I've really discovered an interesting guy called Andrew Huberman, who is the psychologist at Stanford. So he's a neuroscientist at Stanford and he runs a podcast series. It's absolutely, I say mind blowing tongue in cheek because it's all about the mind. It's all about the neuroscience going in the mind. So one of his episodes is, is challenging flow anistas, the people who love flow and always trying to work on flow. And the other side, it's neuroplasticity. So what he's trying to say, and, and this is how I, I heard the message, being in a flow state is 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 doing what we can already do we're repeating the process we can do and actually if we want to improve and grow and get better we need to challenge ourselves we need the neuroplasticity the chemicals in our brain to fire up when we've got this high challenge environment he didn't say this directly in the podcast but my interpretation was flow is brilliant in regard to your tournament preparation maybe the the, the week or the few days before you compete and flow within the tournament itself but actually, are you doing stuff that's really challenging you prior to that flow state? You know, you, you, the neuroplasticity, you're being stretched, you're, you're in continual uncomfortness. What's your thoughts there about the flow versus challenge environment for learning? Wow. I tell you what, I, I haven't heard of Huberman's. I, I mean, I've just, as you probably saw me writing down, I, I've written down the name and I will check this out. I totally go along with the idea of being in flow before the tournament. I, I think what we're talking about in neuroplasticity is, is actually that's only for the times when we're working with the coach. How can the, so the challenge elements, we're going to face the challenge in any case mm. in the tournament. I don't think that's a case. I don't think that's the time for actually stepping out of, out of flow. Mm. What I need to be in, if I'm going to get the best out of my result is whatever abilities I have got, I need to be in that state of flow for the tournament, but I'm totally with the idea of, you know, working on my neuroplasticity. Yeah. But, but how, how many times the athletes take themselves out of the flow consciously, they, they get to a tournament and they're going, I know how to play the backhand volley drop. I can do it. And then they think about it. The whole paralysis by analysis comes to mind here that, you know, there's this conscious effort towards something. It's like, no, 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 we need to dial it down. Um, and I think you've said it really well, softening. Would you say softening is one of the key things to try to keep you in flow, would you Would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know what? I just had, I was trying to think 
this difference between, you know, one of the things that people often do, I, I, I'm not a bad pianist, a keyboard player. Nice. But one of the things is I, when I play the keyboards, I typically go back to play the things that I already play very well. Mm -hmm. So what am I practicing? I'm practicing the things that as a coach, you know, sort of a music tutor might go, Ken, you're not challenging yourself. And it takes a great deal of effort Mm -hmm. for me to stop playing the nice things that feel nice and are easy to do Mm -hmm. for me to focus on playing things that actually are a challenge. What I don't want to have, if I were playing in front of people, playing it, you know, a tournament for some godforsaken reason, <laughs> I don't want to challenge myself there and then. I want to be just in that state of flow. Yeah, a couple of notes I've written from that Huberman, just two quick bullet points. He said, flow is an expression of what we already know how to do, not the state for learning. And flow is an expression of nervous system capabilities that are already there and embedded in us. So that was his little, and it's great little definition of flow. It's, it's, but you said it there, if you, if you were to perform your keyboard to a, a crowd, it, that's not the time for you to go and go, Hey, listen, I've been just, I've, I've practiced this three times, this new technique and song I'm looking at, forget that, isn't it? You need to stay in what you can do. And in simple terms, something I've said to my athletes, and again, maybe this was a, a bit of a ham-fisted way to, to say, stay in flow maybe it's it's the week before the tournament or the night before and I'm having a chat with him on Zoom or, or live. And I just say, listen, you're not going to get any better between now and the time you compete. Guaranteed, you're not going to get any better. Stop trying to get better. What you got to do now is use your skill set you've got and go and express that to the best of your ability. You know, that's, again, maybe a bit of a long-winded way around to say stay in flow. I, would you say that's that's what you would talk with athletes about? Uh, absolutely. No, I totally endorse that. And, and, and take a stage further, what I would want them, if there is any form of training, is to notice when they're not in flow, how quickly can they get back? So if there is some training, how quickly can I move from not flow into mm. flow? How mm. can I very quickly go from frustration to calmness, to, to focus? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I definitely, part of, I think, the mental training that everyone can take on board is the speed with which we can actually move. And, and I think that's one of the speed, strangely, I think is one of the underrated or underassessed competencies for moving up the elite scale is actually how fast, you know, you, you watch what well, we've got Roland Garros, you know, tournament on right at the moment, you know, how quickly can Federer move from one state to another? How, how quickly can they change? Because unless you do this quickly, you run the risk of actually, you know, it, mm-hmm using suboptimal um, you know performance yeah and listen i thought, think that all links back to to what are you doing on a daily and weekly process to work on your mind to actually practice those skills to take yourself well, out of flow and maybe a visualization bring yourself back in um it, it really there, there was there was a great chat i'm not, not sure if you come across george mumford he wrote the book called the mindful athlete he worked he worked with michael jordan kobe bryant lots of basketball things um and yeah the mindful athlete is his brand but he talks about the four A's and, and when you link to speed, this is what I hear when he says this. So the four A's in very simple terms are awareness, acceptance, action, and assessment. So awareness, you have the initial awareness of what's happening. You accept where you're at in the moment, not to berate yourself and not to go, oh God. Then you take an action on it to, to put an intervention in place to change. And then you have a, an assessment. And I suppose if you can do those four A's, in a, in a split second, as in like a Federer can do, that determines elite athletes in the mind. 
Whereas actually of those four A's, if, if your awareness takes your whole game, then your acceptance takes you another game. And then your action, you only have the action when the match is finished because you've lost three love. Does that make sense? It kind of, I love that the four A's and how you can like get them in a really short space of time. Yeah, what I, what I particularly like there, and this is a kind of recognition now that um, ACT, you know, Stephen Hayes Act, mm -hmm. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, that, that yeah. sense of actually recognizing I'm not exactly where I am, but I accept it. That, mm -hmm. And that's in a very soft, we've got this softness again, it kind of going, I'm not, as you said, I'm not going to berate myself for, for you know, the mistake or the error or the, what's going wrong. I'm actually going to go accept it. Um, Mark, uh, I've got any surname, gosh, Yale University Emotional Intelligence Center, Mark spelt with a C, you'll have to look it up. Look it up, um, yeah. he, he was the first one, I think, that said, we need to label it. Okay. We need to give it a label. So when, we're, when we label it, we actually take control of it in some way, shape or form. Mm. But the la I think the labeling is important as well. So the label is not frustration. The label is what I want to have. Oh, that's, I need calm. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the recognition in my head would go calm, nice. soft, easy, flow. Mm -hmm. nice. um, I, I've worked with a, not many, but a few marathon runners. And they talk about that, that, you know, the wall that they hit mm -hmm. is there are recognition that physically they are really beginning to burn and hurt in, in several different places. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of actually, they just need to accept it, but then impose a kind of a mantra that fits in with the flow of their foot, their footsteps sort of hitting the ground in a nice and easy flowing. I, I can't remember it, but we, we create little poet, little mini, mini poems yeah. um, that they just say to, to get themselves back into the flow of things. But that's, that's really because, because for me, that's, that links into what we've had before about some simple mantras under pressure. I think there's a massive squash link there because fatigue is going to set in. Bad decisions are going to set in when, when the fatigue and, and the pressure's on. How can you do the action, the third of those four A's, but based on a, a, a soft mantra or a soft you know, discussion with yourself? But going back one step to the acceptance A, and this is, the, again, the first time I heard it properly in sport, um, it was actually on a, and this is going to be a bit of a shout out, but it was, it was Ali Farag talking about it. And he said, your brother, Mike Way at Harvard was a massive influence on Ali in regard to this concept of acceptance, accepting things we can control and accepting things that are completely out of our control. We put them in a certain container and we go, we accept we've got a bad ref, bad conditions. We're not feeling great. We accept it. But then what do we do with that acceptance? And, and again, I think your brother's done some amazing work with those athletes at Harvard in particular, someone like Ali Farag comes to mind. So and yeah. like you cross cross over there quite a lot with him. Yeah, I, you, you just reminded me, I ought to talk to Mike a little bit more and understand what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, listen, I'm going to definitely have to respect your time. I've probably got about 20 more questions and I'm not even going to get closer, but I've got two more little quick questions, if that's OK. Have you got okay. another five minutes to have a chat? Yeah, okay, quickly. I, I know I'm keeping you away from the housekeeping. So I'd like to love to know what it was like inside the Leicester City dressing room um, in 2016 when they won the Premier League. You were a big part of that, I believe. Can you describe what that was like? Uh, it was just it was just fabulous. I, I think for me, the strange thing is that my memories, when I look back on the season, was not so much about being in the dressing room after, you know, got it, winning the championship. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was, we were playing away at Manchester City towards the end of the season. 
and nobody said it out loud, but typically we, most of us were thinking, if we got a draw here, it wouldn't be too bad. It would be, yeah. that would be really significant. After, I can't remember what it was, but after about 60 minutes, we were three nil up away from home against Manchester City. And we were looking at one another um, and, and going, what's happened? The world has just moved on its axis. It's just, we, we were in just in such a different place. And I think that for a lot of us was a turning point where we started going, do you know what? We can do this. Nice. That's awesome. Sounds like a massive state of flow being three and up at Man City away when they were so dominant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. yeah. What an experience. And you know, the, the, the Premier League football world, you know, is written in history that it was an amazing watch. I'm a Liverpool fan, so it kind of hurts a little bit, but massive respect. You know, if anyone else was going to win it, Leicester were my kind of my favorites to win it. So brilliant. And listen, in closing, I, we have covered some amazing ground here, but I know it's a multitude of things, but you know, and, and it's definitely over a period of time. But what would your one top tip be, or like saying non-negotiable, for improving mental toughness for players to have in their toolkits? I know it's going to be hard to maybe pick one, but what would you say one of the big non-negotiables for mental toughness would be? This this would beg further questions from it, but it would be just make sure you are visualizing the correct thing. I think the mistake that most people make is they get on their own cases because they've made a mistake. They visualize the mistake over and over again. They berate themselves. There's no, there's no learning within that. You know, so when, when I make a mistake, for example, delivering in uh, workshops, one of, the, one of the little calls that I'll make inside my head is, what am I learning right now? Nice. Or, or what's, the, what's the best thing I can do for myself right now? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Ken, that is a, an absolutely brilliant way to leave it. And, and I'm glad you linked it in with visualization because it's, it's a big part of the, the, the training and learning I'm doing. Listen, I massively respect what, what you're doing out there. All the best for, for the future endeavors. Um, I hope at some point the football team can release um, like the team you're working with because it'd be quite interesting to know. Um, but your time has been so valuable here. I would actually love to get you on the show again at a future point because I definitely think there's a whole bunch of questions I've not asked you. Um, Kenway, listen, have a fantastic day thank you so much for your time hey jesse lovely that's great thank you very much thank you presence process persistence the essence of squash mind hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.